Chapter 27 of For God and Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. For God and Gold by Julian Stafford Corbett. Chapter 27 Fort Diego was now all astir with preparations for our homeward journey. The first care was to divide our vast booty between ourselves and the Frenchmen. And I, being merchant to the expedition, was so entirely occupied in this that I had no leisure to visit my senorita, of which, it must be said, I was secretly glad, for I knew not how to approach her what little time I had after my day's wang and portioning and scheduling was done. I spent in Harry's company. These hours of extreme danger to which we had recently been exposed seemed to have changed the whole world to us. In his gratitude for the poor service I had shocked to do him, in his joy to think how his wife still loved him. He seemed to forget all the past, and to hold no pleasure so high as being in my company, that he might talk over the old happy days and build plans for spending our new-won wealth, so as best to delight her in the new happy days that were to come. My joy would have been complete had it not been that there still hung over my head the words which my senorita had used when I bade her farewell. Each hour I felt more keenly. I must go to her and tell her plainly that what she wished could never be. I had no doubt of that. To me she was but a plaything that I was more to her was a thing of which I felt pure shame. I accepted all the blame of it, as a man should. Yet, however rightly, he may look at it. The task is none the lighter, when that man has to go to a woman and tell her he loves her not. The stoutest heart will feel a coward then. It was not till the evening of the third day after our coming, when the plunder was all divided, and we had dismissed our French consorts with their share, that I found heart or leisure to approach her. A side near the ship where the prisoners dwelt, and which had been hauled ashore for some time past, I could see her stretched lazily in her hammock. It was fastened between the mast and the bow of a tree, which grew up hard by, and spread its branches over the poop. Here it was that she loved to take her siesta, since it was a cool and shady place. As I mounted the poop, my discomfort at finding her alone, and at knowing I could not honestly avoid saying my say, was only increased by her beauty, which never had seemed 
so great in my eyes. Dressed in a soft loose robe of white, she lay back at full length in her hammock, a picture of womanly grace, one with arm on which her head rested, was half buried in her lustrous hair. It had become disheveled in her slip, and now fell in rich dark masses about her face and neck, enhancing their dazzling whiteness like some frame of ebony in which is set a magic crystal. Her soft cheeks were flushed like those of a newly wakened child, her ripe lips half parted, her dark fringed eyelids almost closed. Her other arm lay across her, listlessly moving a fan of crimson feathers. Beyond that languid movement, there was no sign of life or motion in her, save the rise and fall of the soft white robe as she drew her breath travelously, like one who is deeply moved. I could not choose but pause, fascinated by a picture whose luxuriant beauty surpassed even the tangled tropic growth that formed its background. But I was soon awakened from my dream, and that rudely too, from behind the mast, where I could not see, came the deep tones of a man's voice, pleading very low and earnest. She did not raise her eyes even then, but I could fancy she drew her breath more hardly still. I could not hear the words, and started quickly forward, lest I should. Of retreating, I never once thought. My coward hesitation was turned to something akin to anger, by that half-heard voice, and my only thought was to find out what bold man it was to whom my senorita gave such familiar audience. She started as she saw me stride to her, but in a moment fell again into her listless attitude, and looked languidly at the man behind the mast. He started too, and I saw to my little ease it was Mr. Axenham. We stared hard and stiffly at each other, saying nothing. He seemed disturbed by my comic, but hid his confusion by drawing himself to his full height, and gently twisting his well-grown moustache with one hand, while the other rested on his sword. So he stood looking at me and waiting, with eyebrows raised superciliously. Has my worshipper no offering for his goddess? said the senorita's musical voice. I expected something richer than silence after so long an absence. Nay, silence is golden, said Mr. Oxenham, mockingly. What would you more? Mr. Festing brings his best. I know not whether it were self-love or love of her that made their words hurt me so sore. But I know I had much ado to bridle my lips. Truly, senorita, said I, silence is the most precious offering I have to give.
Had I never laid on your altar aught less worthy than that, methinks I should have been a more loyal worshipper. She met my gaze with her dark eyes wide open for a moment, and then dropped them again with a strange little laugh. Save me then, she said, from loyal worshippers, such barren heretic ritual I call no worship. Name it as you will, lady, I answered. My comfort must still be that no worship is better than sacrilege. If I cannot be a worshipper, at least I will not profane the shrine. She flushed a little higher at this, and looked at me again, half inquiring, half frightened, and then once more dropped her eyes. Was this what you came hither to say, false worshipper? She said, as though a little vexed. No, lady, I answered, I had much to say, and I came to crave that you would walk with me along the shore while I told my tale, but now I think it needs no telling. Shall he come with us, senor? She said to Mr. Axenham, who still stood twirling the end of his mustache. It is for my queen to command, he said, whether I escort her or not. Then my worshipper, she said after a moment's hesitation, for this day your attendance is excused, and with a queenly gesture she held out her little hand for me to salute. It was hard to be dismissed, so, although an hour ago I should have looked on any dismissal as the happiest thing that could befall me, now it angered me. It flashed across my mind to turn roughly away from her, and refuse the caress she offered with such pretty insolence. Yet I hold, however ill a woman may treat a man, yet shall he never better his case by a rude behavior toward her. So I took the little hand in my fingers, and put it to my lips with ceremonious courtesy and so withdrew. I turned round at the poop ladder to the sand, and was surprised to see her gazing after me wistfully. But she looked away hurriedly when she saw my eyes upon her, and laughed merrily at something, as I suppose that Mr. Oxenham said to her. I fancied her merriment seemed to ring a little false, but maybe that was only my fancy. My thoughts were very ill at ease as I sought my lodging. All had gone as I wished. The bonds wherein I had suffered myself heedlessly to be bound to her were unloosed. I was free, and that more easily than I had thought. Yet somehow I did not feel released but rather thrust out and cast away. Harry came in to me later, and fell as usual to talking of the joy of our return. Yet tonight it seemed wearisome to hear him, as he pictured the pleasures of his coming life, of the untold joy of living again at Ashted, 
with the wife whom he had lost a little while and found again. My old library rose up, ever in my mind, very cold and dim and lonely, and I found it hard to share his content. As I listened to him, my long, low chamber, with his gloomy rows of books, its uneasy saddles, and its great stiff chair beside the heart, became a vivid picture to me, as though I saw it. Each moment it grew more real and gloomy and lonely, till suddenly, I know not how, I seemed to see the beautiful form of the Senorita glowing in the great high-backed chair, and brightening the whole chamber with her sunny presence. I crushed the fancy as it rose, but to little purpose. Try as I would, I could not choose but picture it again and again, not only as Harry talked, but also afterwards, as soon as I closed my eyes to sleep. There she always was, in that long, low room, whichever was to me the center of my life, curled up so prettily in the grim old chair that it seemed quite proud and happy to hold the sweet burden in its rough old arms. As my wife, I pictured her there, but all the while I clearly saw what fully it was. How could I, a scholar, wed a wayward piece of Eve's flesh like that, with her wild temper, her empty little head, her utter ignorance of all that made my life. In her whole nature, there was not a note to sound in harmony with me. It was a mad folly even to think of it. I knew that, yet how she seemed to brighten the room as she sat curled up in the great chair by the heart. With great vigor, I threw myself into the work of preparation which was going forward, in order that I might forget my foolish fancy. There was plenty to do, for Frank had determined to thoroughly refit and furnish our frigate from the Pasha, which ship, being much worn, he purposed to give to the Spanish prisoners, that they might go whither they would. It was then his intention to move with the frigate and pinnaces to the cabezas, and thence make an effort to recover Captain Tattoo and the treasure we had left in the care of the land crabs. In spite of all my sharp reasoning with myself, I became each day more wretched and distraught as our work neared completion, and the day for dismissing our prisoners approached. Yet I was resolved not to see her. At her shrine, I said ever to myself, I cannot worship. If I go to her temple again, it can only be for sacrilege. So I went not near her again, but Mr. Axingham, I think, was continually both on the ship and walking with my senorita on the shore and in the woods till the time came for the prisoners departing. It was about a fortnight after our return from capturing the request, when we had taken all we desired from the Pasha, 
and we no longer feared any danger from our hiding place being revealed. That Frank announced to the prisoners that they were to be freed on the morrow and entertained them in the fort by way of taking leave. That night I was captain of the watch. It was close on midnight, as feeling very sad and lonely, I was looking out over the landlocked heaven to where the pasha lay ready to sail on the morrow. The moon was rising in great beauty over the dark foliage of the island, and as it shed its lights upon the peaceful waters I saw, to my surprise, the pasha's gondola being rowed toward the shore. I made quickly for the spot where it was likely to touch the beach, telling the guard to stand by and listen well for my whistle, as I suspected some design of the prisoners upon our treasure. Concealing myself in the breaks close to the sea, I waited and very soon heard the boat grate on the stones. Then I stepped out to see what it might mean, and no less welcome sight could my eyes have seen. For there stood Mr. Axenham helping the senorita ashore. I knew it was she, though for some reason I cannot tell she was dressed in the sailor garb in which I had seen her the night of the Cimarron's attempt upon the prisoners whether those two had some wild scheme of escape together, or whether she hoped to pass observation till Mr. Axenham could conceal her and carry her home in the vice-admiral, which he was to command, I cannot tell. Maybe it was only a romantic fancy of hers to attempt her escape in this disguise as she had heard of other women doing in old tales, or maybe, knowing well how dazzling was her beauty in that array, she thought thereby to charm her escort the more. This, indeed, I think it did, for as he lifted her out of the boat with great tenderness, I saw him kiss her very lovingly. Then all trace of love or respect for her seemed to leave me, and I felt quite calm as I stepped forward to do what seemed my plain duty, and passed them the challenge. What again? said Mr. Axingham fiercely. Why, what a meddler are you, that have not heart to love a fair wench, and will yet prevent a man that has? She started away from him when she saw me, had she clung to him for protection. I think I could hardly have kept as calm as I did. Love or no love, Mr. Axingham, said I, it is no matter of that here. What you intend I know not, but it is against the general's plain orders that any prisoner should leave the pasha before she sails and this lady I must see aboard again. What a pestilent meddler it is, muttered Mr. Oxingham, drawing his sword. If you want her for your own, by heaven, you shall fight for her. Pray you be content, Mr. Oxingham, I cried, giving ground. 
or I must summon the guard. What madness is this? He pressed on so hard, crying fiercely to me to draw, that I saw an encounter could not be avoided. Yet I would not whistle for the watch, have for her sake once more, seeing how she was clad, and what man would say of her, have for shame of seeking help, after Mr. Oxingham's blade was drawn on me, hoping the better to worst him without doing great hurt. I took my cloak upon my left arm instead of my dagger and drew. He was coming at me with his buckler advanced and his sword uplifted for a cross blow like to the mandrito squalembrado, but very unscholarly. So I fell from my draw to the good word detesta, as Marozzo teaches, to receive his blow on my rapier. And hey, straightway in punta reversa, threatened my imbrocada at his throat over his hand. He was cleverly ready for it with his buckler, so I lowered my word suddenly, lunga larga, and throwing a resolute staccato under his defense, compelled him to spring backwards out of distance. He came on again immediately with a good down right defendant as though he would have broken my word by main force. I avoided it by a quick passado to the right, pushing at the same time Stuccata, which he took again on his buckler. But it was only a feint of mine to make him advance his defense, and so stop him recovering quickly. It served its purpose well, for I was able to cast my cloak over his blade before he could make his recovery. And so, passing my left leg forward, I seized his sword by the hilt. At the same moment, I threatened an imbrocada at his face, and while he raised his buckler to bear my thrust, gave his hilt points such a mighty wrench with my left that, seeing he had not the Italian grip, I was able to tear his sword from his grasp. It was no fair encounter. He was a pretty swordman, at the old swassing play and buckler play, but having been at sea all his manhood, he had never had occasion to learn the new fence as I had, and would not, I think, if he had been able for, like most Englishmen of that time, he greatly despised it. I could not but be sorry for him to see him stand at my mercy, as he now did, nor could I resent his angry words. Curse on your foining Italian bird-spit play, said he savagely as I returned him his sword. Curse on your scurious cullion tricks. Did you fight like a man? You should not have won her. Still won her you have, and by that I abide. Take her, and rest you merry with your light love. With that he took his sword, and with a mocking salute to the senorita, strode rapidly away. I looked for no less in him, for in all points of arms I had never found him a most precise gentleman, and had no doubt since he was worsted, 
he would honorably leave the field to me. So I slowly went toward my senorita's fairy form leaned against the boat. Lady, said I, think not I deal hardly with you, but at a word you must indeed go back. No, no, Gasparo, she said, sinking on her knees before me. Take me, since you have gloriously won me. Indeed, I do not love him. I did but use him to play upon your love and make it grow as great as mine. Tell me not I have killed it. I did but go with him because he promised to deliver me from my misery. It was only that I hoped to win you at last. Peace, peace, lady, as you value your honor, said I at my wit's end how to keep my resolution. This thing cannot be. The general would never suffer you to abide with us. It could only end in strife and dishonor. Indeed, you must go back. Oh, Gasparo, she pleaded, clasping my knees. You know not what you do. You love me, and know it not. You love me, and send me back to my misery, when we might know such joy together. You cannot tell what it is you condemn me to. You cannot tell the horror of a woman's life when she is wedded to one she loathes. Wedded, cried I aghast. Yes, she answered wildly. Have pity on me. Do not hate me for it. I did not tell you, nor did the others, because I pleaded for my father to pass for unwed, that I might the better win favor for them. So I said, but in truth it was that I might taste the joys I had never known. I was hardly out of childhood, ere they wedded me to an old man for his wealth. He was bitter and cruel and ugly, an ape that I loathed. Yet I had no respite from his detested presence till he went to Lima on his affairs. Afterwards he wrote for me to join him. I was on my way thither when you captured me, and at last I saw my occasion to know for once what it was to be wood. Oh, Gasparo, hate me not for it, but rather pity me. I am beautiful, I know it. I was made for men to love, yet never knew what it was to be wood by one true man. Pity me and have mercy. I cannot go back now. Horror struck to find, as it were, that my scene had followed me even to that far island in the west, where at least I might have hoped to be free. My courage almost forsook me. A destiny such as one short year ago I might have laughed at, as the last to be mine, seemed now forever fastened upon me. Once more I grasped the hilt of Harry's sword for strength, and then firmly took the little hands in mine, and freed myself. She stood up before me then, gazing in sad entreaty in my face, as I implored her to go back. I showed her how, even were I willing to do as she wished, Frank would never permit it. I tried, as well as I could for shame, to show her 
how great was the sin she would bring upon her soul. It is hopeless, she said as I ceased. I see it is hopeless to move you. I must even return to the misery you have made doubly hard to bear. Farewell, Gasparo, farewell. She held out her hand to me as she spoke. I took it coldly, my other hand on my sword. But that was not the end. With a sudden wild impulse, she flung her arms about me, and my lips were tingling with one last passionate kiss. She had sprung into the boat and pushed off here. I hardly knew what she had done. So, faint heart, she cried as she stood up beautifully in the moonlight. So, I set my sign upon you. When another comes to whom, you would give what you deny me. May she taste my kiss, still lingering there and learn, though you know it not, that you have loved before. With difficulty she rowed herself back to the ship. I watched her shapely figure grow less and less across the moonlight water, till she was lost behind the dark hull, and I was alone once more. End of chapter 27